Our epistle lesson this morning is found at the end of Colossians chapter 3, moves into the beginning of chapter 4. Listen carefully to God's word. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. And Father, as we come today, we ask for your help. What can feel remote and distant in cultural terms, we also know is your word. And so lead and guide us into all truth. And we ask that you speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Special word of thanks to our musicians who diligently worked this morning to put out fires and solve crisis and figure out how we were going to make things work without our normal sound system. And so I'm grateful to Andy and his team for pulling all of this together. It was a mad scramble for them. Our passage this morning, Colossians 3, 18 through 4, 1, is not free from controversy. Inevitably, it will offend everyone in the room in some way today. I noted that about the household code several years ago. About a decade ago, I was preaching on a sister passage in the book of Ephesians, and after the service, I noted that two adult men were making a vector towards me at the front of the sanctuary. One arrived and said, Chuck, that was so well done. Thank you. It spoke to me in some circumstances in which I was facing. And another was spitting mad, red in the face, fingers in my face, didn't know exactly where all of the threats of judgment were going to go. Same sermon, two very different reactions. They saw and heard two very different messages. And when dealing with sensitive topics, it is helpful to reflect on the wisdom of C.S. Lewis. He observed this. He says, what you see and hear depends a good deal on where you are standing. It also depends on what sort of person you are. And so this morning, ahead of coming to this loaded material, we need to ask ourselves these two questions. First, where do I stand? The answer is tightly connected to the culture, even the generation that you particularly represent, that that will largely determine where you stand. And in this sanctuary, we have several different cultures and generations that we represent. And this impacts our understanding of things like gender and family and different complications. It's crucial for all of us, young and old alike, to reflect on where we stand culturally 
and not assuming that our cultural stance that gets baked in in various ways is necessarily shares the assumptions of Scripture. This, import, this is important, especially for two groups, the more traditional and then sometimes the more progressive, that we need to think through how do I think, how do my thoughts come into accord with God's thoughts? Where do I stand and what does God need to say to me? But the second question is also important. We must ask ourselves, what sort of person am I? To hear Scripture's commandments, and especially in the household codes of Colossians 3 and 4, this requires a lot of context. In the verse immediately prior to these instructions, we are told this from Paul, that whatever we do, in word or deed, to do everything in the name of our Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In other words, what Paul commands us here is that we are to take the totality of our lives and to offer them to the Father in and through the Son, Jesus. We do this not to somehow gain God's approval, to climb up the ladder into heaven, but rather we make this sacrificial offering because we already have the approval of God that we are recipients of grace. In verse 12, we've been told that we are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And that's not because of anything we have done. It's what has been done for us because of Jesus. And so now, this good news, this declaration of our forgiveness, of being beloved by God, of being his choice and chosen uh, precious possession, that this impacts what we hear that this idea of what sort of person am I when we've been intersected by the grace of God and we become part of God's adopted family, it impacts how we hear things. But if our starting point is our personal rights or if our starting point is our personal authority, then we will take this passage very badly and we will hear things that were not intended to be heard. We will hear words like submit in offensive ways and not in the way of the gospel, because it is in the gospel that we learn of the son who submits himself in self-sacrifice, and also of the son who has authority in his submitting himself to us. And so if we begin, though, as the beloved children of God, submitted to the Lord who gave himself for us, we tend to hear something else today, a loving and tender message about how to construct a household, and what the household of God is to look like. And so, reflecting on those two questions, we come to this household passage in Colossians 3 and 4. Household codes were very common in the ancient world. It's hard for us to appreciate, but the philosophers always included it in their writings. It was considered to be wise that in particular the head of the household, who was the father, was to be a good manager of three different parties, his spouse, his children, and then what was commonly called their bond servants. And so Paul takes up this common household code, something that would have been expected, but then he doesn't just take it up. He actually transforms it. Because what we see here in Colossians is very different and through the course of the sermon, we will uh, have exposure to how different the Christian household is 
from what was found commonly in the world. So this morning we'll ask and answer the question, on what foundations does God build the Christian household? And there's four principles that we'll consider ahead of our coming to the Lord's table. First principle that we'll see is the principle of, of equality. You'll note something here that these different parties are addressed who were members of the household. In verse 18, wives are addressed. In verse 19, husbands. In verse 20, children. In verse 21, fathers. In verse 22, bondservants. And then in verse 1, finally, masters. This is one of the areas in which Paul's letter differs from those other household codes written by pagan and secular authors. Because traditionally, the household codes were addressed to one person. There was only one person who received the commandment. And that was the head of the household. But you see here something radically different is happening. That Paul has constructed this code in a new way. Because all the members of the household have received instruction and they've been personally addressed. And so it's critical for us to ask the question, why? Why do the wives and why do the fathers and why do the children and why do the bondservants receive a personal address? And the answer is here in the book of Colossians, earlier in chapter 3. Because why they were addressed is that it is always understood that in Jesus they shared a fundamental equality. Please look at verse 11. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. And so what we have here is an outworking of this equality that we share before God and with the church itself. That in Christ, when we are hidden in him, that we share a righteousness that belongs to him. And that righteousness presents us to God and we are received by him. But it's in that righteousness that we then relate to one another. That the social stratifications that we so oftentimes create melt away. And that there is an equality here in the church. That our lives are hidden with Christ in God. And this works out from the vertical sphere into the horizontal. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the martyr during World War II, author of the famous book Life Together, captures it well. He writes this, what determines our brotherhood is what that man is by reason of Christ. Our community with one another consists solely in what Christ has done to both of us. And friends, this is what is being worked out here in the household code, is the equality that we share because we are in Jesus Christ. But second, it's important to note that we also see a principle of order. We have to recognize that the Apostle Paul can discuss this idea of equality, our equality in Christ, and he can do so also in the context of speaking of governance and leadership and roles that are had by people within the household. John Stott, the famous Anglican pastor, years ago noted this. He wrote that equality of worth does not equal identity of role, that the world simply could not operate on those conditions. And so husbands in Colossians 3 are assigned leadership role in the family. This, of course, does not mean that they control everything. 
And it does not mean that they do everything thankfully. Rather, it's a particular role in which the husband is charged to be the overseer and the governor of the well-being, the health, and the flourishing of the household under his care. And so given this, what we see in Colossians 3, moving into chapter 4, is an ordered and organized set of relationships. Bond servants are under the care of the head of the household. Children are under the care of parents. Wives are under the care of husbands. But also we see that there's a larger order that exists here as well. That the entire code, the entire set of instructions assumes that each member of the household is under the care of a greater Lord and Master, our Lord Jesus. Therefore, everyone in the Christian household together is under authority. None are without accountability. This means that there are no sovereigns. There are only servants. And that we have reciprocal relationships and we have responsibilities to one another and we have roles that are assigned by God and that we all, under God's authority, seek to fulfill those roles. That yes, we have a master in heaven and this master governs and rules over us and he is the same one who gave himself in our place. And so yes, we have a principle of equality, standing with one another. And we have a principle of order that God has given for creation to flourish. But third, we see another principle, and that is that we see the principle of reciprocity. That is, there are things that are reciprocal that happen. There are actions and reactions. Inside of all these various roles, we see these responsibilities. And this is, once again, where the Christian household differentiates itself from what was on offer in the first century. Each of the parties we see here are actually responsible to one another. But in particular, and this is important to stress, that the head of the household, who many would say has the most authority, who's responsible for the governance of the household, but he also has this unique reciprocal responsibility. You'll see that husbands are instructed to love their wives and not be harsh. You'll see that fathers are instructed not to provoke their children lest they discourage them, causing them to lose heart. You'll see that that same person, that same office is instructed to treat their bondservants justly and fairly. And friends, what we have to receive here is that the way authority is conceived of inside of the Christian household is very different. That oftentimes we assume that anyone in authority has the, the right and the power to serve themselves. But this is emphatically not what is being said. That no, this person, this father, this head of the household, his office requires special care. And it's not a sovereign right to serve himself, but rather his authority is used to serve others, to love his wife, to not dishearten his children and crush them, to be just and fair, righteous above board. And so, yes, in this household, there is equality. This equality does not subvert order, the order assigned by creation. 
But this order is also not about self-interest, but it's about service and servanthood and well-being. Something emphatically different than was being offered in the world around the ancient church. But fourth and finally, we also see a principle of liberation. Chapter 4, verse 1, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. It's important for us to note that the majority of this passage is actually taken up in addressing this relationship between the head of the household and the bondservants, or what you could also translate the word slaves. It's important to do a little bit of contextual work here, and we have to work hard at that, because in the Roman Empire, bondservants, they were not like the slaves of the chattel slavery system known here in the American South. Bondservants were the workhorse of Roman society. Estimates are that one-third of the population was in this situation of being a bondservant. They ranged from domestic servants who took care of things around the house to doctors, to teachers, and even to architects. Many people, to get ahead in life, sold themselves as bondservants and then would later purchase their freedom from their owner. It was a broad system, and friends, it's very difficult for us to map that system into life in the 21st century. But there is something important to note. At the end of the day, bondservants were property. And in our own day, we struggle with that. Why is Paul commanding people who owned other people? Does the Bible just assume that that system was okay? And so many have been puzzled by this emphasis. But the emphasis is also intriguing to follow and to chase further in this letter. Further down in chapter 4, Paul actually explains to the Colossian church that he's sending a man named Tychicus, who was a fellow worker with Paul. He was a preacher of the gospel, and he was coming to serve them. But along with this man named Tychicus was another one who was coming. His name was Onesimus. We learn of him in verse 9. And he actually belongs to Colossae. He was from the city, and he's returning with Tychicus. On the surface, this may seem like an unimportant detail, and many people ignore the last verses of every letter that Paul writes. It doesn't seem to be much there. But it's also important for us to reference that information against another little short book in the New Testament that too goes overlooked named Philemon. Philemon is a partner of Paul's in the gospel, he is uh, evidently a leader in the church. And so Paul writes a letter to Philemon about a runaway slave. A runaway slave who encounters Paul in prison and actually converts, becomes Christian. And so Paul writes a letter to Philemon about a man named Onesimus. This is the man who's returning with Tychicus to the city of Colossae. And what Paul says there in the book of Philemon, he says, So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. He said, You once lost a bondservant, but now you have gained a brother. So receive him as you would receive me. 
And then Paul goes on in verse 21, and he closes the letter with this. He says to Philemon, confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. The number of pages that have been written about the phrase, even more, what does that mean? What was Paul implying? I don't think it requires the number of pages devoted to it. That it's really quite clear that for the apostle, what he was asking was that Philemon would manumit, that he would free Onesimus, and that he would send him back, and that he would join Paul in his gospel service. And that we have to appreciate that, that Paul is here working out the priorities and the statements of the gospel and all the quality establishes between us. He's working that out against the system that was dominating the world. It was the major social and economic system. And so what we have here is a brother, an equal in the Lord. And Paul is calling for Philemon to do even more to free him. And friends, this is the liberating power of the gospel. That this institution of bondservants and of slaveries, of human beings owning other human beings, of human beings being treated as property, that this was not part of the good order of creation. And the gospel sets a trajectory that it would undo this corrupt and fallen system and that the gospel subverts this cultural system and overturns it. And this is the beauty of what we find working itself out here in the household codes and in the house of God, as Paul writes. And so, friends, we find these principles operating and at work in deep ways, a Christian social ethic emerging from what it means to be submitted to our Lord Jesus the one who comes on our behalf, who gives himself, and now the one whom sits at God's right hand and governs and leads the church and sits in all authority, the one who calls us choice and beloved and holy because of what he has done on our behalf. And he gives us these principles of equality, and he upholds the principle of order, creational distinctions that God has given us for flourishing, he speaks to us about reciprocity, what we owe one another inside of this order. And he also speaks of liberation, undoing things that have been done because of our fallen and broken world. And so friends, where do you stand? What sort of person are you? How do you hear this? Hear it through the lens of the gospel, of the God who submits himself to death who submits himself to the condemnation of sin and does so in order to free you, to free you from the weight of that and to lead you into new creation. Allow him to shape your life, your household, the very mundane things of life. Allow him to speak and gently listen to him. Let's pray for his help. Father, we confess and we acknowledge that we are so often committed to our own wisdom and to our own way. We assume our cultural stance and we assume our knowledge is right. Help us to be supple, teachable to you. Instruct us and guide us. 
and work into our lives, into our homes, into our church family, these principles of equality, these principles of order, these principles of liberation, these principles of reciprocity. Shape us, God, that we be a good and godly household that knows how to give thanks to you in all that we do, that it would be an offering made to you in and through your Son, Jesus Christ. And we give thanks also this morning that you grant us the great privilege of bringing our prayers and our requests to you on behalf of our world, on behalf of our church, and on behalf of ourselves. It is through your Son, the one seated at your right hand, that we come and that we gain an audience with you. And so hear us today as we pray. And let's begin by praying for God's saving power to be known among the nations, especially praying for our mission partners, Tommy Park and Allie Randall, working with RUF at the University of North Florida. As the school year resumes over the next weeks, let's ask God to bless the upcoming outreach events and also asking God to provide opportunities for connection with new and returning students. Let's also pray for all in authority, especially for our President Joe Biden, both houses of Congress, and also the justices of the Supreme Court. Pray that all our governing officials will promote justice, restrain evil, and uphold integrity and truth. Let's pray for those on the margins of life in our city, especially amidst the heat wave. Let's ask God to provide the basic necessities of food and shelter for those who find themselves homeless in Jacksonville. Let's pray for those who grieve, those who are sick, and all who are suffering in our community this morning. Let's especially remember Sue Forsyth, struggling with back pain, Elizabeth Garnett, suffering from stage four cancer, Garganius, also dealing with cancer and kidney disease, and Wayne Noble. Let's pray for the children and youth of Christ Church, asking God to work within their hearts that they might never remember a day apart from Jesus Christ.
And let's close saying the prayer our Savior has taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever.